of July 4th. You know, uh, I want to, that's all right. I don't need to be on because I object to all this stuff he just showed. <laughs> you see, uh, I resent the fact that I no longer have the ability to deny what I said. It's, <laughs> it's, I mean, they nail you with this stuff. I want to tell you something that has nothing to do with the sermon today, but uh, I just have to tell you it's, uh, it's funny. Last night uh, we were at Aaron's house. We have one of our great-grandsons, Tyler, was born on July the 4th, and uh, Aaron graciously celebrated, and Aaron and, and Stacy graciously celebrated uh, Tyler's birthday at their house. And while we were sitting there, Aaron told a story, which has nothing to do with anything, but I just have to tell it because it's a good story. A young man who was 16 years of age came to his father and said, Dad, you know, now that I'm 16, I'd like to sit down and discuss with you the possibility of either buying me a car or letting me drive yours. And the father said, well, I'd be happy to discuss it with you, but first there are three things I would require. Uh, first of all, you need to read your Bible every day. Secondly, you need to have your grades raised to the point that you at least have an A-minus average. And third, you need to cut your hair. Well, after about three months, the father sat with his son and said, Son, it's just wonderful the way you've been reading your Bible every day. I can tell you haven't missed a day. And your last report card, straight A's, it's wonderful. But you haven't cut your hair. The boy said, Well, Dad, you know I've been reading my Bible faithfully, and I've even seen some Bible pictures in my Bible. And, you know, it appears Moses had long hair. Jesus even had long hair. And the father said, yes, son, but I want you to notice one thing. All of them walked. <laughs> uh, we can thank, thank Aaron for that story. I just had to tell it. It has nothing to do with the, with the morning at all. <laughs> oh, my goodness. July 4, 1776. Something was born on this globe that had never been seen before in the history of all civilizations. And I really can't think of a better summary description of that signal event than the one given by Abraham Lincoln 87 years later in his Gettysburg Address. Lincoln began by saying, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And then after speaking directly to the occasion for which the speech was given, he closed with these words that accurately described the government that had come about. This government of the people by the people, and for the people. And since that time, we can look around the globe and see how nation after nation has tried to duplicate what America has initiated. And yet, as we look around at all of these attempts, we have to say that none of them have been able to achieve those things that make us distinctly American. July 4th. 
the date on which every year we celebrate the birth of our nation. And when we do that, we thank God for the blessing of our nation, just as Jim spoke this morning. We also thank God for those who paid the great price to obtain that freedom so we can live in such a land. But, uh, you know, even though we have parades and all kinds of events like Joel and Ruth and Joel's mother attended yesterday in Washington, D.C., I like Irma Brombeck's description. You have to love a nation that celebrates its independence every July 4, not with a parade of guns, tanks, and soldiers who file by the White House in a show of strength and muscle, but with family picnics where kids throw frisbees, the potato salad gets iffy, the flies die from happiness. <laughs> you may think you have overeaten, but it's patriotism. <laughs> Don't you like that one? <laughs> you know, the word freedom has just been heard over and over and over again this weekend. And uh, I don't think it'd be out of place if we would sing a patriotic song this morning. Uh, let's just stand and sing together America. We know it. I like it better than many because it acknowledges God. My country, tis of the sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Our Father God, to Thee, author of liberty, to Thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God our King. Isn't that a great song? <laughs> you know, you can sit down now. When I was a child in, in grade school, that was really viewed as the national anthem. <laughs> uh, I, I really like it better because it acknowledges the part of God and the great blessing that we have. Freedom. There are many freedoms. January 6, 1941, just after having been elected to his third term as President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave his, uh, his State of the Nation speech to Congress. And this was the time when Hitler was already moving the dark carpet of the power of the Nazis across Europe. Most America at that time was isolationist, and Roosevelt was trying to move our nation toward becoming involved in what he saw as a world cataclysm. In that speech on January 6, 1941, he spoke something that has come to be known as the Four Freedoms. It was his Four Freedoms speech. Roosevelt stated, In the future days, which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential 
human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. Those two things were in the Constitution. Then he went beyond the Constitution and said, the third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. Saturday Evening Post featured uh, paintings by Norman Rockwell, and these, each one portraying one of the four freedoms, became posters posted all over the cities, all over the nation. We may not agree with all of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's four freedoms, and certainly perhaps not the implementation of them. And yet, freedom is something for which every human being longs. It just seems to be something inherent of who we are. Now, no one who knows Scripture can hear the word freedom without thinking of Galatians 5.1. You know it. The New International Version says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The Holman Christian Standard Bible renders it this way, Christ has liberated us into freedom. Therefore take stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The New Living Translation renders it this way, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Now this week as I began to look at this verse, noticing the different ways that the many different translations rendered it, I have to ask myself, what did Paul really write? And as I got into this particular passage in the Greek, I was surprised, I'd never noticed this before, that this particular verse is a challenging verse as far as textual credibility is concerned. There is this particular family of Greek manuscripts that has a particular set of words. There's this particular family of Greek manuscripts that has this set of words and another. Some place a humon before the word Christ and some after. Some have a proclitic that the others do not have. But even if you finally decide this is what Paul really wrote, then it becomes a huge challenge to translate it. He begins the verse with the dative with a definite article. What does that mean? And you'll notice the different translations make a decision as to what Paul meant when he began this verse with a dative with a definite article. The New American Standard says that Paul meant that the purpose of Christ's act was to give us freedom. The King James, the 
Holman Christian Standard Bible says that Paul was indicating that freedom was not the purpose, but rather the result. The New Living Translation isn't a translation. It's really more of a comment. The men are saying, well, this is what he really meant, and draw from later parts in the chapter, bringing some words uh, into this particular verse. Which one is right? Whichever one is right, whichever nuance you feel Paul really was expressing, every one of the understandings emphasizes this fact. Christ has provided a wonderful freedom for us. And we must be diligent to not allow ourselves to fall back into bondage. Whichever version you choose, that's the point that really is made. This morning I want to talk about that freedom. How can I escape doing so on this weekend? The liberty that we have in Christ Jesus, which is greater, more wonderful, more important than any other freedom for which a person can yearn. Now, by way of introduction, let me say that this freedom could not have been obtained by any other means than our Lord Jesus Christ's death upon the cross. If I had been alive and had been an adult in 1776, I very possibly might have been in George Washington's army. I may have walked with bandaged, bleeding feet through the snow to fight this battle and that battle and often very discouraging battles. But when it was all over and freedom had been attained, I could have said, I am free because I fought for it. I and my fellows, we gained for ourselves this liberty. We did it. If I had been in uniform during World War II, if I had fought in North Africa, if I had landed on the beach at Anzio, if I had fought through Italy, if I had fought through France toward Germany, if I had fought in the many horrible battles of the Pacific, I might stand today and say, I fought for all of this. I earned it. I have it. My fellows and I gained, earned, preserved this freedom. Matter of fact, there are a lot of freedoms for which we could say, I earned it. But this liberty, the liberty of which Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, 1, never could have been achieved by human effort. Paul wrote, Christ set us free, and only he could provide the deliverance that resulted in this freedom. When speaking to the Jews and the synagogue at Pisenia Antioch, Paul talking about the freedom that we have in the law, Jews that hope to find in the law what their hearts long for, Paul said in Acts 13, 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is 
freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now this morning we're not going to belabor this point because we all know it. It's been said so often from the pulpit. We declare it each time we partake of the Lord's Supper. But I want to talk this morning about that freedom, the freedom we have in Christ. Past week, as I began to read all the scriptures I could find that described it in any way at all, I frankly became overwhelmed, <laughs> overwhelmed to the point of discouragement. What am I going to say about all of this on Sunday? The freedom that Christ has obtained for us is a jewel with a huge number of sparkling facets. I could not describe all these facets, so this morning we're only going to focus on one, and that is this. The freedom that Christ has attained for us that delivers us from slavery to sin. We often talk about being delivered from the guilt of sin, and yet I was surprised as I read Paul's writings to notice that he talks about freedom from slavery to sin as much as he talks about deliverance from the guilt of sin. That's where we want to go this morning. Beginning in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and continuing on through Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Paul presents two truths. Number one, every person is enslaved to sin. Point number two, God has delivered us from that bondage, or at least provided that deliverance for us. Now when you begin reading Paul, and this morning that's what we want to do. We want to take this thought from here finally to the end. In Romans 6, where Paul begins, he talks about two kinds of slavery. The first slavery is the slavery to sin, which results in death. The second slavery is slavery to Christ, which results in life. And between these two conditions, there exists a death and there exists a rebirth. And in this, Paul uses the imagery of immersion to teach those truths. Notice when we come to the baptistry, we witness an execution and we witness a funeral and we witness a rebirth. Sometimes we hear in evangelical churches somebody saying, we therefore will follow Jesus Christ in Christian baptism. Every time I hear somebody say that, I have to restrain myself. I want to grab somebody and shake them and say, no, 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 if that's all it is, we're wasting the water. Because what happened to us is far different than what happened to Jesus. Jesus was immersed as the inaugural event of his beginning his ministry. The Holy Spirit came and abode upon him in the form of a dove. And then he went forth to accomplish the purpose for which he had come to the earth. 
But when we come to the baptistry, something totally different happens. We come because we are sinners. Notice it begins with an execution. Verse 6 of Romans 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. And verse 11, Even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When I come to the baptistry or the pool or wherever the water is into which I'm going to be immersed. If I do that in the spirit of what Paul has said, I come and I kneel and put my neck upon the block and I say to the executioner, swing your axe. The old man is killed. He is dead. He is gone. And I will never lament him I will not grieve over him. I will not mourn over him. I will bury him, and I will walk away and forget that he ever existed. That's what Paul says when you read the flow of his argument here in Romans chapter 6. You know, there are a lot of lyrics that catch your ear. I think one of the most profound and yet simplest truths ever to occur in modern lyrics was Chris Christopherson's Bobby McGee. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. In which is the line, freedom's just another word or nothing's left to lose. That's quite a truth, isn't it? Freedom's just another word or nothing's left to lose. When I am executed, it's all gone. I have nothing left to lose. It's gone. And I bury that old person. And I will not grieve for that person. I will not with, with melancholy reminisce for what that old person was like. But I will bury that old person. Verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. A new creature is born. And that newness of life becomes reality. Verse 18, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. One reason people who have come to Christ struggle with sin is because that initial transaction never took place. They never executed the old man, in their minds at least. In their hearts they never buried the old man. But somehow they want to keep at least a hint of the old man alive. As Paul wrote, do not make provision for the flesh and the lust thereof. But some people don't 
want to let it die. They will do all they can to keep it alive. And therefore, constantly, constantly they struggle with living a righteous life. It's important, as Paul said, reckon yourselves dead. In other words, that's mental attitude. Think about yourself that way. That guy's dead. That isn't who I am anymore. That's somebody dead and gone. Now, at this point, notice Paul is talking about our attitude toward ourselves and our ability to exercise choices, to choose and to not choose. And frankly, I'll have to say chapter 6 presents the ideal, but most of us don't experience the ideal, do we? And so Paul moves on then to chapter 7. And there he talks about the impotency of the human will. Verses uh, 14 to 23, for example, he talks about his own tendencies. He said, the things I, I know how ought to be, even for me I say the old man's dead, and the things that I want to do, I don't do them, and the things I don't want to do, I find myself do them, and I try the best I can, even with the right attitude, even with the saying the old man's dead, still, still, I find, as he said, sin living in me. <laughs> you see, the ideal doesn't always just happen like that. So, he moves next to the realm of the supernatural. Romans 7, 23, I see a different law in the members of my body, raging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh in the law of sin, then Paul moves on to describe the spiritual process whereby the Holy Spirit leads us away from sin to righteousness. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, and here he's talking about the ability to exercise the will, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Holy Spirit. Paul here is making a contrast between those who seemingly have done everything right and in every situation, try to make the right choice. And yet, stumble. Contrasting that with those who are relying upon the Holy Spirit to enable them to exercise the will in a way to do the will of God. That's the difference. Many of the popular programs that 
deal with addictions, acknowledge the need for supernatural help. And that's exactly what Paul is declaring. Reflecting back on what we said about Romans 6 and Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but, and here comes the Holy Spirit, Christ lives in me. And the, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's important. I die, yes. I executed the old man, yes. I buried the old man, yes. I came to walk in newness of life, yes. And yet two hours later, I lost my temper. I said that old man cussed, but I will never cuss again because I'm a new man. And I get frustrated, and out of my mouth comes something. The old flesh is working to get resurrected. Have you been there? <laughs> I'll never gossip, never again. Yet on Sunday morning, somebody comes up and says, Now, I want you to pray about this situation in Mary Joan's life. And in a minute, we've gone beyond praying for Mary Jones, and we're talking about her. Have you ever been there? On and on we go. Paul said, you can't do it just with your will. But filled with the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, inhabited by the Holy Spirit. It isn't you living, but it is Christ. You know, the Holy Spirit has a lot of ways of helping us, and one is, is each other. Hebrews chapter 10, 25, not forsaking our own assembling together. is a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there remaineth no longer sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of fire, which will consume the adversary. You know, the Holy Spirit works within us, but if we're really walking with him, and we're availing ourselves of all of the aids that God has given through the Holy Spirit, we receive from the Holy Spirit through our brothers and sisters. And I want you to notice he doesn't say that we are to condemn one another. But it says encouraging one another. I want to encourage you in your walk with Jesus. And here's another thing. I, we were talking in a young men's square table meeting last week about some matters. And uh, this, this came forth. We were talking about Catholicism, Protestantism, and so on. One thing Roman Catholicism has that Protestantism has lost is this, the power of auricular confession. A Catholic comes to the priest to confess, Father, I have sinned. And the priest says, what sin, son? And then, or daughter, whichever, the sin is confessed. And then the priest pronounces forgiveness and then tells you what to do. Pray certain prayers, recite certain things, or whatever. Now, 
we can't agree with that at all. <laughs> but there is power in auricular confession. Saying to my brother or my sister when I stumble, here's, here's something I did, it's a sin, I'm confessing it to you. James says, confess your faults to one another and pray to one another that you may be healed. Now, you don't do that to the whole world. I'll be honest with you, sometimes in preaching, I think of in my own life, such a wonderful illustration, I'm going to present it. Almost this morning got too transparent. The Holy Spirit said, Jim, they don't need to know that. But, uh, you know, we, we do need to be humble enough to realize that every single one of us who is faithfully serving Jesus is walking the same path that he makes straight and we try to make crooked. And we need to confess to one another our weaknesses and pray for one another and encourage one another. It's no loss of face to admit to a brother or sister that you're struggling with something. The Holy Spirit uses us in one another's lives in this way. There is power in auricular confession. But we need to go a step further. Even when one acknowledges the old man is dead, even when one has given himself to Christ and Christ is his master and you are Christ's slave, even when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, even when you are receiving the blessing of brothers and sisters who are encouraging you and helping you along the way, even when you're doing all you can to keep yourself off the throne and Christ upon the throne. Sinful human nature from time to time still gets resurrected. See, the Paul even admitted it, didn't he? I try. I'm spirit-filled. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm not living but Christ in me. And yet he said, the thing I would do, I don't. The thing I shouldn't do, I do get that right <laughs> and I'm no better than Paul so to deny that would be unrealistic and dishonest when that happens if we really are wanting to glorify Jesus we immediately when we fall have to deal with shame we have to deal with despair a sense of failure what do we do? At this point, John comes in the room and says, Paul, it's just so wonderful, all this stuff you've taught, but I need to add one more thing. <laughs> I need to add one more thing. If we say we, John 1, 1 through 6, if we say have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice truth. If we walk in the light, see himself in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. Now, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, and this is not auricular, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned and make him a liar, his word is not in us. Dear brother, dear sister, that's liberty. <laughs> That's freedom. 
I can be free when I stumble. I can be free from self-condemnation. I can be free from the enslavement to shame that comes from spiritual and moral failure if I only acknowledge my sin and with repentant heart confess it to God. When it's done, it's gone. <laughs> That's liberty. Isn't that a beautiful liberty that we can have? So think about this freedom. I can almost hear Jesus in such a situation when a sin is confessed with repentant heart. I can almost hear Jesus saying what he said to the woman taken in adultery. Neither do I condemn you. Go thou and sin no more. So if we like Galatians 5.1 from the Christian Standard Bible, Christ has liberated us into freedom. If we like the English Standard Version for freedom, Christ has set us free. If we like the King James, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Or if you like the New American Standard, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Or the New Living Translation, so Christ has truly set us free. Pick any one you want. <laughs> but the underlying truth of all of them is this. Christ has given us a freedom that could be provided only, only by him. Let's relish that freedom and let's withstand anything that tries to pull us into bondage, either bondage of law on one side or bondage to sin on the other. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Father, we thank you for the liberty that you have given us. We ask, O oh, Father, that should there be any here who never did come to that place where they executed the old man, O oh, God, may that transaction with you take place right now. Lord, if there are any here who out of pride are trying to live a holy life by the exercise of their own will. We ask you to bring them to surrender and open their lives to the Holy Spirit. If there are those who in some religious way are still sitting on the throne in control and have a sense of self-righteousness, by your Spirit humble them that they might enthrone Jesus upon the throne of their lives. And Father, the gratitude in our hearts is beyond expression. As we thank you for this liberty, for your grace, for your mercy that has given us this wonderful liberty that Jesus has provided. Through him we come to you with thanksgiving. Amen.